The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 23rd, 2020. On this week's show, Yahoo's Sirat Sohi will be here to talk about the NBA draft and free agency and the fact that the season is somehow starting just a month from now. Jessica Luther will also join us for a conversation about Yahoo's investigation into LSU's mishandling of sexual misconduct allegations and why this keeps happening year after year. And finally, Grant Wall will speak with us about his new podcast, American Prodigy, on the teenage soccer phenom of yore, Freddie Adu. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, host of Slow Burn Season 4. With me from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer Joel Anderson. He's the host of Slow Burn Season 3, the upcoming Season 6 on the L.A. Riots. Hey, Joel, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Josh. What's going on with you, man? I am looking forward to a limited and socially distant Thanksgiving meal. It's going to be like a normal Thursday then, basically, correct? I mean, <laughs> right. what do you, yeah, I mean, what, it's just going to have turkey at it? Well, now that you mention it, because this is Thanksgiving, I wanted you to give our audience the gift of telling them about the turkey leg hut. I was oh, looking man. for some Joel Anderson turkey content on Twitter. Oh, man. And the turkey leg hut seemed like good fodder. So first of all, the, the one interesting connection I found out about Turkey Leg Hut is that former Philadelphia Eagles cornerback Bobby Taylor's ex-wife is part owner of the Turkey Leg Hut. <laughs> and the reason I know this, because Bobby Taylor's son, Bobby Taylor Jr., is a top recruit in the Houston area this year. And like, I guess the publicist for the Turkey Leg Hut is also somehow his publicist, which is sort of weird because he's a junior in high school. But um, they have successfully gotten him on the local news. That's amazing. Yes. But the turkey leg hug is great. I took my mother there for Mother's Day and my father for his birthday. So this is like Houston area barbecue place? (sighs) Well, it's not barbecue. Yeah, it's turkey turkey legs. I mean, like, you can get a turkey leg stuffed with um, crawfish, mac and cheese, um, Where I come from, all turkey legs are stuffed with crawfish, so that's oh, not a big oh, yeah, so that's right. I mean, this is all hat to you, then. I mean, you're you're not even impressed. Yeah. <laughs> Our producer Melissa just turned their video on just to make a like a frowny face at the turkey leg. What, what I would say is that the food doesn't <laughs> photograph well, but it is fantastic. Like you will not. My mother is about as finicky a human being as there is. And I just made her go for Mother's Day just because I wanted to go there really badly. And she ended up not regretting the choice uh, to go there. So support small business. Support small local Houston businesses that stuff turkey legs with various other food products. Um, I should note, Stefan is not with us for this intro. You'll hear his voice very soon. He'll be on our second and third segments. And we wish him a happy Thanksgiving as well. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Somehow we're just a month out from the start of their NBA regular season, which tips off on December 22nd. 
In this pandemic-shortened offseason, the NBA was forced to cram a lot of activity into a short window, with the NBA draft on Wednesday and free agency opening on Friday night. But even before the Minnesota Timberwolves could make Anthony Edwards of Georgia the number one pick, that was big news. Golden State Warriors guard Klay Thompson tore his Achilles, meaning he's out for a second straight season. Elsewhere, the defending champion Lakers signed away Montrez Harrell, the reigning sixth man of the year from their crosstown rival, the Clippers. The Clips, meanwhile, got Serge Ibaka to team up with his former Raptors teammate, Kawhi Leonard. And Gordon Hayward inexplicably got four years and $120 million to sign with the Charlotte Hornets. We're bringing in NBA writer Sirit Sohi of Yahoo Sports to help us make sense of it. Thanks for joining us, Sirit. Thanks for having me. So out of everything that's happened in the past few days, what do you think has been the biggest move so far? I think the biggest move is actually the one that didn't happen. The Bucks tried to trade for Bogdan Bogdanovich, and it turns out they were tampering. And uh, <laughs> they were tampering a little too obviously for the NBA's liking. I think the trade, we all knew about the trade by Tuesday. And Bogdan, obviously, because he's a free agent, he would have had to give permission to, to be signed and traded to, to the Bucks, and that was not allowed at that time. That wouldn't be allowed until Friday. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of reasonable arguments to be made that the Bucks were made an example of, but at the same time, I just think you can't you gotta be better about doing your business. So they got slapped on the wrist and a pretty bad one, by the way, because I think he would have fit perfectly with what they need. And it looked like Giannis was recruiting him. And it looked like Giannis's pen was right on the paper to sign that super max extension. And uh, so far, he hasn't. And he's had, I would presume, the opportunity to do so since Friday. I've seen you on Twitter talk about this. You think that they have, like, basically royally fucked up, like, all the way around, though, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, I would say. And I, I don't want to blame John Horst too much for this. He was 34 years old when he got hired by the Bucks in 2017 after John Hammond left. Um, he was the director of basketball operations, which means that he got promoted a couple of rungs. And I don't know that you necessarily do that when you know there's three years left on on your best player's contract and he is one of the most wanted guys in the NBA and people are already talking about his free agency. I think you go for more of a sure thing. But the Bucks had some ownership disputes, and uh, they never really ended up going and getting somebody that, you know, really could have turned things around, even though I'm sure there were plenty of GMs that would have loved to have the opportunity to build around that team. So that, I think, is an ownership mistake. But basically, since Horst has been in there, you know, they started off pretty decent. I think hiring Bud, we can talk about that now, but at the time, it was pretty much you know, the most celebrated move, like it was, he was the number one coach in the market. Um, and from there, they had, they've had it pretty rough. They've traded a lot of, a lot of first round picks, a lot of assets for guys that are middling or a little bit old, would not be on Giannis's development timeline or the development timeline of Chris Middleton or Malcolm Brogdon, who is not there anymore. <laughs> um, and they've been trying to replace ever since. So I think, I think things are pretty rough for the Bucks right now. Uh, and if, if Giannis, doesn't stay, I think it's going to get even worse. They have four unprotected uh, first-round picks going out to other teams because of some of the deals that they've made. And they haven't really solved any of their big problems. Like They need shot creation. That, and I think that's been so obvious pretty much for the last two years. I think if you're building around like a guy like Giannis, that's one thing he doesn't have, so that's what you want to try to get. But instead, you know, even if you look at a guy like Drew Holiday, he can do everything else. But... He's not really the guy that I want creating shots. And that wouldn't have applied that much to Bogdanovich, which is why the fact that they couldn't get him really, really, really sucks for them. But I just, 
I think they led themselves to this place where they needed this guy and they really shouldn't have. Drew Holiday's a really good player. I, uh, oh, yeah. I, Look at that. I New Orleans coming out. Yeah, yeah. The unspoken subtexts that she I called Drew Holiday. I want to be clear and, about Josh this. Josh got upset <laughs> as a Pelicans fan. Yeah. Well, I mean, their success or failure entirely depends on whether they can get Giannis to sign mm-hmm. this deal. So it matters less what you think and I think than what Giannis thinks. And so Definitely. if Giannis is really pissed that they didn't get Bogdan Bogdanovich, mm-hmm. even if I think it's not that big a deal, then that's really what matters. And so... The thing that's so fascinating about the NBA is that they have this free agency period. There are maybe like 8,000 deals that get made within about 30 minutes, which is impossible to do if there's not tampering. That's a a separate issue. But none of them really matter compared to like what Giannis Antetokounmpo does, whether he, you know, stays in Milwaukee or goes to Miami or Toronto. Like that's going to determine the balance of power in the NBA much more than, than anything else. And obviously what, you know, where Anthony Davis wants to force a trade, like that ends up determining mm. what happens. So it's like really fun to follow all these deals. Like uh, I'm, I'm following Woj and Shams as much as anybody else, but you know, Sierra, does it actually like, you know, I, I don't want to undermine Joel being like, what's the most important deal that oh. happens in the yeah. last couple of days? He doesn't want to undermine me, but he's about to. So go ahead. <laughs> But like, does any of this stuff really matter? Yeah, listen, I think I think Hayward leaving Boston definitely matters. I don't really necessarily see the Hornets, you know, vaulting themselves into contention because they got him. It's it's bad for Boston that he left and bad for the Hornets that he went there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I thought I I don't want to take credit for this, but I saw I saw the Ringers Rob Mahoney tweet this and he said that it's never a good sign when you have to waive the forward that you overpaid to pay for the forward that you're about to overpay. And he was talking about <laughs> Nicholas Batum being stretched to make a deal for for Hayward. And I think that's that pretty much uh, summarizes it on on Charlotte's side. They're you know, they're just they're never really in the mix, so they do have to overpay for those guys. And that's I don't know, that's that's fine to me. That's just not even as interesting to me as the fact that he's no longer in Boston. And that leaves them without a guy that can really intuitively make plays and they miss that so much in the playoffs. I think if he was there against the Heat, it would have been a completely different series. He's a zone buster. And that's what you're going to need in the future, I think. I think more and more teams are going to figure out a way to play zone, and he's going to become more and more valuable, actually. Hmm. So it'll be interesting to see, actually, if if down the line Hayward gets traded. Um, Charlotte's not one to trade their, their stars, but he is probably at some point going to crave a championship. And if he ages reasonably well and there's a team that's desperate enough, I could see them in two years trying to say like, hey, yeah, okay, we have to overpay him and we might have to find a way to move around some stuff. But Hayward's a guy that can get some things done for you. The most interesting deal that I, you know, I think Joel was one that was made before the draft and before free agency, which is Chris Paul going to the Suns. And that's an mm-hmm. example of a team that's like not going to contend for a championship, but that's like a really good, young, up and coming team. And like, I am always in favor, and you've talked about this in terms of the Rockets and Daryl Morey, like, I'm always in favor of teams that aren't going to win a championship still trying to get better. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, they're going to contend for probably, like, the four or five seed, and it's going to make the West a lot more interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm I'm glad that Chris Paul got to go somewhere he wanted to go. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You know, because I think that that's where he wanted to be. And he did... 
So I was actually talking about this with somebody. Because he's that, old and it's warm there? Mm-hmm. Like why? Yeah, why? Well, you know, and he's also another one of those people that we talked about, you know, before we got jumped on here, like the dumb narratives against people. So there's like the LeBron narrative, the Tony Romo narrative. And so pe- that somehow people have sort of talked about Chris Paul not being able to get to the finals. And that's some, supposed to be some sort of mark on his legacy. And it's like, no. Like, I mean, that's just happenstance. The, getting mm-hmm. to the finals is hard. That dude is great. And if he doesn't get to the finals, it doesn't make him, you know, less than one of the three best point guards of my lifetime, right? But yeah, I'm glad that he's getting to go there and the Suns are going for it. And that OKC will have 30 first round picks from now to, you know, 2026, assuming that 2026 uh, exists. But the one thing that it made me think about, though, is that so, yeah, Chris Paul goes to the Suns and the Suns are better. And they're going to move into the playoffs. And then I was looking at, like, my team, man, the, the, the Rockets. And Sarah, you can, like, I don't know what the hell is going on with them. Um, because, I mean, obviously, you know, James Harden supposedly wanted to leave because uh, Tillman Fertitta is a Trump supporter and he thought about wanting to go to Brooklyn. And it just kind of seems like all of that is mm-hmm. coming to an end now. That like, the, like, whatever it was I enjoyed about the Rockets for all of my life, that, like, it just seems like it's all about to fall apart now. Do you agree with that? Uh, well, first of all, one thing I just want to say, I just think it's really cool that Chris Paul has is not chasing rings. Not that it's bad to chase rings, but the mm-hmm. fact that he has found some sort of comfort in being a veteran leader for young guys. It seems like he kind of discovered something to give him some meaning in the mm-hmm. back end of his career in OKC. And he's carrying that over in Phoenix. And, you know, it just shows you, like, you, we've seen it with Vince Carter. There's more than one way to go out. And there's more more than one way to find purpose in the league. And that's that, hmm. to me, is really cool. That's but moving on, to, uh, moving on to Houston, man, I don't know. I, first of all, I think it would be funny if, if James Harden went from, you know, the team that, that he, you know, he lost, a, he lost a ton of money because Daryl Morey tweeted about Hong Kong to then going to play for, for Joseph Sy. <laughs> that would be be a great a great money move for him but man i mean it looks like it looks like they don't want to trade him and it looks like you know they they signed christian wood who is a great signing especially for the money that he got it looks like they want to try to keep him i don't know how that will end up playing out because usually in these scenarios it's just kind of wait and see like we saw it with ad where you know at some point the rubber hits the road and you do have to just trade the guy to the place that he wants to go but I did have... Well, even if you do want to trade him, you want to pretend like you don't want to trade him for right. bargaining purposes. Right, exactly. And I also think that like because the Rockets are such an unknown entity in terms of what they're going to do next, uh, we don't really know how much, now that Maury's gone, like how much is Tillman going to be doing things? Like We just don't really know what kind of front office they're going to be. Like So that, I think, makes it a little bit tougher for teams. I think if this was Maury, right? Like, we'd be like, okay, like... Maury understands what's happening here and he will try to find a way to get the best value for the guy and it would be a little bit easier. But I do have a fake trade for the Nets if the Rockets don't go for trading Harden. All right, hit us with a fake trade. So you call the Bucks like right now and you say, hey. All right, hold on. All right, we've got the Bucks. Yeah, go we got the Bucks. You're the, <laughs> we're the Nets. We're the Nets. We got the Bucks. And we say, hey, it looks like, I don't know, it looks like Giannis isn't that happy with you guys right now. What do you feel about... Karis Levert and just see you know speculate speculate see what see what you got to give like see what you got obviously you got to do more but you got to pack like you got to package some stuff around him right and I think you go all the way up to like Karis Jarrett Allen Crooks and Claxton like and and obviously like all your picks like anything really right (laughs) 
You don't want to put Landry Shamit in the deal because he's going to help you in the playoffs. He's a perfect 3 and D guy. But if you have to, you do it and you try to pick up one of those guys. Because by the time you have Kyrie, KD, and Giannis on the same team, then basically it's like the Lakers. Oh like everybody, everybody is uh, is trying to play with you by, <laughs> by, by that point. And then they're going to say no to this, right? They're going to say no to this all the way through. And then December 21st hits and Giannis has not signed the Supermax. And now you're really freaking out, right? And you just wait. You don't call them. You go, ra- you go radio silent. And then you wait to see how the season starts off, and you call them in like two weeks, and you're like, "Hey, what about Kyrie Irving straight up?" Mm. Just see what happens. <laughs> you just see what happens. <laughs> uh, I, it, I, no. I don't think they Nobody. would do it. I don't think no, they would do yeah. it. But I think it's a good backup plan if they can't get it. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like they have all these assets that they're trying to offer for this guy, right? So, like, usually, like this, this happened with the Nets actually, a couple, uh, like almost a decade ago where it seemed like they were trying to put together this offer for Carmelo Anthony. They realized they weren't going to get him, and they got Darren Williams instead, which at the time, you know, Darren Williams had a lot of injury issues, but at the time it was like, oh, wait, they just got a guy that's way better than Melo. What you've described is not a trade offer. It's trolling. Like, that, that, that's, <laughs> that's, not, that's not anything that the, uh, that the Bucks would listen to. Yeah, okay, well, the listeners aren't going to be able to see the look on my face right now. But <laughs> I think that's accurate. I think that's accurate. Um. I am also interested in what Joel's response is when he sees Daryl Morey doing smart things oh. in Philly, like getting rid of Al Horford's contract, getting you all, you Seth all Curry me. to surround, you know, the the Embiid and Simmons with shooting. You guys tell me that, like, so the Sixers, have, it's been well known that, like, they have, they have, they don't have shooting, right? Like, I mean, they had these, like, very noticeable flaw, and they've got... Al Horford in there just clogging up the lane. You know, just like being an old man in general. You know what I mean? Like just not there's not a lot of return on investment there. And then it seems like inside of three weeks that Maury he I'm not gonna say he fixed the Sixers, but that he figured out a way to like make them much more viable than they had been. Is that a fair reading of what happened here? Because it just I don't know. I mean, I feel I feel like like why couldn't the Sixers have done all this before now? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I think he fixed the Sixers. I think that's fair. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. One, I'm glad you're saying it. Yeah. The one thing I think we might look back at is did they need to tr- trade Josh Richardson? Because mm-hmm. I think the Miami Heat version of him would have fit perfectly with what they're trying to do. So part of me is like, mm, I don't know, like you might. You might have wanted to wait on him, but at the same time, if you're getting back a shooter like Seth Curry on the contract that he's on, he fits so perfectly with what you're trying to do that we're kind of splitting hairs there. But I think it's I think that trade with the Mavs ended up being very good for both sides because of that. And I think it's gonna be good for Richardson too. Like playing alongside a guy like Luca where he doesn't have to handle the ball is, is pretty much perfect for him. But at this on the same token, like playing alongside Ben Simmons. Being used a little bit more correctly would have been perfect for hi- for him there too. It's just a matter of like the things that the Sixers do. I do still think they're going to have to do a lot of things differently, and I'm kind of curious to see how uh, how Rivers hand- handles uh, Simmons and Embiid because those are the two big things. Like Embiid needs to become a bit a bit a bit better as a passer, mm-hmm. maybe even a lot better as a passer. Honestly, because the whole thing now is like okay, you take the guy, in the, you take your guys into the post, but you need to leverage that for three point shots, and you need to find a smart way to do that. So he needs to become a better passer, and Ben Simmons just needs to screen more. Even mm-hmm. Embiid needs to screen more. Like when I was looking over at their at their stats, and I was like, man, like this team actually has a ton of potential. They just don't set any screens with their with their uh, big guys, and you know, setting a screen with Ben Simmons is a way to solve the fact that he can't shoot. Like that's it. 
that's what the Warriors do with Draymond. You could have done that, you know, like two years ago. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, the Warriors, because I, um, I don't know about you all, but like, it's over, right? The Warriors are over. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in thinking about this, and like, Sarah, you, you wrote a good column about this, about um, why everybody's so sad about Clay mm-hmm. and how he's sort of one of the the last, maybe the last, like, universally beloved player in, in the NBA. Per- and you can look back at it. <laughs> I mean, you can look back at it and make, like, I think a legitimate claim that the Warriors dynasty ended when Clay hurt his knee in game six of the finals like that KD like they got what they were going to get out of KD like everybody knew that he was gonna leave Mm -hmm. and like we didn't kind of fully appreciate at the time how much that injury was gonna destroy this team that had won before Durant had gotten there and could have potentially won again and it is like really a a shame and and sad that it seems like we're never going to get to see the post Durant Warriors like make a run at it well let me also throw this out here for y'all like I know that, you know, we were looking forward to seeing Steph and Clay play again. Even though I think I, I think their their bona fides as a contender was sort of overblown. I still didn't think that they had enough, but I was like, okay, it I would have just brought us joy. Mm-hmm. Right. But here's the thing. What to me, it just feels like, and I don't know if the Warriors front office could have done anything differently, but like KD did not have to leave. You know what I mean? Like it, like that's why you had they needed KD. Like, as it turns mm-hmm. out, they needed KD. And, like, I just don't know if it, like, if it was the, the beef with Draymond, if KD is, you know, somebody that cannot be satisfied and had to go on regardless. But, like, there's no reason that he had to leave. He could have stayed in Golden State, right? Yeah. And so, like, to me, that's when, like, forfeiting KD, allowing him to go, or, or not allowing him to go, not, not creating a relationship that would want him to stay was the end of the dynasty as much as anything to me. Yeah, I do. I would. I would agree with that. I think your evaluation that that they wouldn't have been in like a bona fide contender is probably correct too. I mean, obviously they would have had a little bit of rest and you know be refreshed and probably looking forward to to going back in there. But if you look at LeBron and AD Lakers, like it, you need you need an answer to that, and they just they don't have one. Draymond Green yeah. cannot guard two two people at the same time. Try as he might, he is probably one of the best at it. But uh, <laughs> that would have been pretty difficult for them. Sirit, thank you for joining us this morning. And I guess we, you know, we catch your work at Yahoo Sports, right? Yeah, yeah. You can you can read me at, at Yahoo Sports. I hope to have you back soon when we've sorted out all this free agent madness. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In 2016 and 2017, the LSU Athletic Department received reports about two separate rape allegations against star running back Darius Geis. Yet at each step of the way, according to a report published last week by USA Today, LSU officials either doubted the women's stories, didn't investigate, or didn't call the police, allowing Geis to continue his football career. That investigation by USA Today showed that the Geis case wasn't an isolated one, that, and I quote, 
At least seven LSU officials had direct knowledge that wide receiver Drake Davis was physically abusing his girlfriend, but they sat on the information for months while Davis continued to assault and strangle her. And USA Today also found multiple cases outside of the LSU Athletic Department in which, rather than expelling or suspending male students found responsible for sexual assault, LSU allowed them to stay on campus. Jessica Luther joins us now. She was one of the co-authors of the story, along with Kenny Jacoby and Nancy Armour. She's also a co-host of the podcast Burn It All Down and the co-author with Kavita Davidson of the book Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. Jessica, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. The piece, which is just exemplary investigative work, it outlines a systemic issue at LSU, failures to comply with procedures under Title IX, unwillingness to take sexual assault accusations seriously. It's about a university failing its students and its community, but it's also at least in part about football. Um, How should we think about this as a sports story or as a football story in particular? Yeah, well, it's definitely a football story, right? And that we knew that that would be the big thing that would get picked up in lots of places. But it was also really important to us that we have the part of the story where it was LSU in general, that there were just regular students uh, living their lives at LSU and having trouble with Title IX and how the school responded to reports of sexual violence or gendered violence. But yeah, these are sports stories because LSU, like lots of D1 schools, has a you know, athletics is so isolated from the rest of the campus. They have their own way that they go about stuff and stuff gets siloed in those spaces. And then all of a sudden it's like an outpouring of information uh, when these people come forward to tell their stories. And I think we saw that here. There's that flavor to sports stories that's different than the rest of the university because athletics operates a lot of the time on its own without a lot of scrutiny. Jessica, there was a professor uh, in the story that said that LSU exhibited, quote, the same pattern of continually mishandling these types of incidents that was seen at Baylor, Penn State, and Michigan State. As somebody who's covered these stories, too many of these stories at too many schools, was that sort of your takeaway that this looks very much, because that's, to say Baylor, to say Penn State, to say Michigan State, you're saying among, you know, some of the worst, most notorious cases in college. Yeah, Yeah, it's very similar stuff. I think one thing that's always sad about doing this work is that the stories do reflect each other. They look like each other all the time, and it's the same thing over and over and over again. But at the same time, even though I've I've heard so much, I've read so much stuff in documents, I'm still shocked every time at sort of the callousness with which people can dismiss this stuff. And so, but that that too is just a the same reaction that we see over and over and over again. And so, yeah, this definitely, to me, fits up on that level with those schools. People should be as upset here as they were for those schools. And those schools and more. I mean, there was a report about Colorado State failing on Title IX investigations. There was a lawsuit filed by seven women earlier this year against Michigan State, Nebraska, and another D1 school. So you're right. This is like the combination, right? It's the, we focus on the athletics because athletics get attention and get headlines, but there's a broader problem here about the way universities enforce Title IX guidelines and why universities even have the ability to do this. I was reading a broader piece about this and came across a quote from uh, Nancy Gertner, a Harvard law professor, who said in 2015 that Title IX sexual misconduct proceedings are the worst of both worlds, the lowest standard of proof, coupled with the least protective procedures. How much does that factor into the way 
these cases are handled on campuses and at LSU in particular now. Yeah, that's such a good point. I will say that I think there's no good institution in which to report uh, any of this kind of violence. Like, it doesn't really seem to matter who these victims go to. They're often uh, let down. But yeah, it seems to be there's a particular way that it works on college campuses where a lot of the time these it's mainly women. There's also men who are victims, of course, but that these women are asking for kind of basic stuff. Like sometimes that's part of what's so shocking as they're like, I just don't want to go to class with this guy. And the school's like, oh, that's too hard. We can't do that for you. Uh, and so you get these very small requests that the school acts like they just can't possibly do anything for these people. And it's just so frustrating because like in the in the case of LSU, they have policies. So the university has said in response to all this, they're going to review their policies. And the women that we've talked to are like, the policy was there. Just no one's doing anything with it. Uh, they're not following the, the own, their own rules that they set up. And Title IX is one of these things where no one does anything until it's reported that things are going poorly, right? So you have to have someone have an issue with it and then tell somebody. It's not like there's anyone checking up on it, making sure that it's running smoothly. So you have to have someone harmed and then the institution has to handle it poorly. And then that person has to figure out a way to report it before anyone even pays attention to it. So it's just, it's such a mess most of the time. The one thing I noticed reading that story, it almost seemed like LSU was mad at the women for reporting it. Like, I mean, you know, like, like you said, they were such small ask. Like, I don't want to be in class with this guy. And they're like, no, sorry. I mean, did you get the, it seemed like they were like malevolent in adjudicating these cases. Or is that just not uncommon in these kinds of cases? I mean, it's not uncommon. There are so many instances, like one thing about doing this kind of reporting, I say this all the time, is you actually hear way more than you end up reporting. So we've heard like all kinds of things, right? And so a lot of the stuff that we're hearing from these women is that Ellis is like, who are they protecting? Like, and it appears to, for these women, it feels like PR, like it, image protection is the most important thing. And for a long time, that worked really well for LSU, right? People weren't talking about this. Part of what we've seen since we reported is like a flood of response because all these people were waiting for someone to say all this out loud in a way that made them feel seen, <laughs> like that this was a common experience, that they weren't alone in this. So this this is common at the same time. It is very hard to understand what the officials at LSU were, why they were making the choices they were making. So we've talked so far in the segment to some degree about failures in the Title IX process. I want to repeat some of the stuff that I said in my introduction. LSU officials doubted the women's stories. At least seven LSU officials had direct knowledge that wide receiver Drake Davis was physically abusing his girlfriend. But it's not a Title IX issue. No. No. That's an issue with culture and with people. Um, and I guess that's a question that I have, Jessica. It's like we talk about cultural issues in athletic departments, uh, rape culture, but we also have names of coaches in this mm -hmm. piece. We have the name mm -hmm. of Verge Osbury, who gets the, um, he's an athletic department official who has a text message from Drake Davis himself admitting that he abused his girlfriend. So it's not even a he said, she said issue. It's the player directly telling the official, I did this, and him not doing anything about it. And so how do we think about 
people in these situations who don't do anything? Do we think about them as individual bad actors who need to be dealt with? Or should we be thinking about them as, you know, people who are in the system? And then if we replace them and put in other people in that system, they would do the same thing too. I think it's a little bit of both and it has to be. I mean, I do think people should be responsible for the choices that they're making, even if the system is encouraging them to make bad choices. But I certainly believe and you know, I've been reporting on this for over seven years now. I wrote a book on college football and sexual assault. And I certainly believe the system is set up to encourage people to make bad choices, right? Like that's one of my huge takeaways with how college football works in general. Uh, you know, I, I believe that about how they treat players as much as how they treat reports of gendered violence that a lot of the time the system is exploiting the people around them in order to make money and win football games. And so I do feel that, Josh, that like, yeah, if you just replace him with someone else and they came in, they might make those same choices. And I think this is one of the struggles with how we break the cycle. And it's hard because football, college football team is encased in an athletic department, encased in a university, encased in a society and that doesn't take sexual violence and gendered violence seriously in any way, right? And so we're trying to change something that's the outside of it is is not going to uh, support a lot of those changes. And I think a lot of the time, the coaches and these athletic administrators are coming up through the very system that I think we need to change. And then they're being tasked with changing it. That's really hard work, right? To, to like, they buy into all the messaging too. And so how do we, where is the intervention that's actually going to change this? And I think some of it is, yes, individual actors should face consequences for the choices they're making. There's that sort of deterrent. And also, like, you should be accountable <laughs> for your decisions, especially ones that lead to the harm of the student. I mean, one thing I will just, I, I feel like I say this a lot, but I feel like we have to say it a lot, is that these are educational institutions. That even the people working on in these football programs are, in theory, educators. And we're talking, especially in the Davis case, about another student, right? And... I, I'm not sure where we fix it. Like, how how do we get in there so that we can stop the cycle? I feel like it's definitely possible, but the culture is so hard. And especially when you get to, like, the big money. I mean, LSU is sort of famous for this, wasn't it? That it wasn't that long ago when they, like, had a new locker room and then the library was flooded. I feel like, wasn't that LSU? Mm -hmm. where it was I think like, it was LSU. Yeah, that was yeah, LSU. Yeah, it's like, where's the money going? Uh, and everyone knows, right? That And so no one wants to stop the money train. So, yeah, hold the individuals accountable. But also we do need to be doing the cultural work, which is way harder and much more difficult. One of the things that really leapt out at me in the Drake Davis story, when you talk about who's being protected here and, and how it's a group effort to effectively protect prominent athletes, Drake Davis's girlfriend at the time that he was accused of assaulting multiple on multiple occasions was a tennis player. And the two people, two of the people that effectively cover up for him and dismiss her allegations and don't follow the correct procedures are the coaches of the tennis team. So who are they protecting here? That seems like a big unanswered question to me. It's like their player was the one that was being injured. So what system exactly are they part of that they feel the need to protect some football player? It's a great question. I mean, I don't know the answer, obviously, because we weren't allowed to talk to them. Uh, they didn't speak to us at all. LSU wouldn't really speak to them much about anything. 
But yeah, I do think that's the question. Like, how do they know that that's the choice they should be making right. within this system? And I, you know, I think a lot of us understand that football is big and powerful. We hear this all the time from victims. I mean, that's a pattern that you see all the time. People don't come forward and they say the reason is because football is so powerful. So I'm, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that the coaches and other teams feel that too and understand that this is how it works. But yeah, I think that's a, an excellent question. You talk a little bit about it in the story about how it seems like LSU thwarted your reporting, you know, at basically every turn, right? Like, I mean, so even if, you know, they want to try to say that they can fix it, right? It didn't seem like they were interested in getting the information, if anything. So I want to ask you about that, like, if you can just kind of lay out for us, like, the ways in which they try to thwart your reporting. But I also want to ask you to think about, has any school in the history of you covering this ever done it right? Like, has any school ever, mm. you know, had a, a good response to any of this stuff? Yeah, I, that's such a hard one as a reporter to answer because people come to you as a reporter when something has gone wrong, right? And so this is the kind of thing, again, no one reports good Title IX programs. They only report the bad ones. And that's how we find out that there's something going wrong. I feel like Tyler Kincaid at one point had a piece and maybe it was about, oh, I I don't even want to say the school because I can't even remember, but it was like, that was the headline, the one school doing this right. And who knows if that's still true. So yeah, I don't know. This kind of reminds me of Title IX gender equity in sport. Like you basically can't find any school anywhere that does that properly. And again, it only becomes an issue when someone sues, right? <laughs> um, and it's such a hard question to answer, especially coming at it from the place that I do because of who comes to me to tell me about their stories. And like, I remember when I was working on Texas A&M with Dan Solomon, we wrote a piece for Texas Monthly. And one of the women we talked to had a great experience at Title IX and then afterwards felt terrible when she learned that so many other people did not, right? And so it's such a complicated thing. As far as LSU, yeah, they really dragged their feet on everything. Every records request took I think an extra long time. There was a lot of badgering. USA Today would get their lawyer involved and they're in court. This is the part, I feel like Kenny should be here for this. He was like our document hound around all of this stuff. But USA Today is actually suing alongside Samantha Brennan, who was a woman that uh, Geist took a picture of and then shared without. She didn't know he was taking the picture and then she certainly didn't know that he was sharing this topless photo around with other players. And they won't even give her the records. So USA Today is working with her and they're both suing the school to get these records. So it's been this long process so I'm a, an LSU fan. I have been since I was a kid. I got a lot of joy out of them winning the, the national championship. And reading a story like this, I think the reaction of a lot of fans, and hopefully I think not my reaction, is like, why are you trying to take down this school that <laughs> I like? And seeing reporting on sexual assaults and, and its mishandling as being like sort of adversarial. It's like you're against the interests of mm -hmm. fans of the, of the program, which is just such a fucked way to think about it. And yet, even if you like to think of yourself as being an enlightened sort of fan and somebody who doesn't support this, you end up feeling complicit by rooting for this team and supporting this team. And I want to have this conversation now. I don't, I don't want to obscure it and pretend like everything at LSU is great because I like watching them play on Saturday nights. But it's just a part of the larger issue. And Joel, we've talked about this a bunch before. Of like, We're college football fans, and we both of us know how rotten 
the sport is in so many ways. It's a shame that we enjoy it the way that we do, but yeah. Yeah. And so it's not, it's not really a question so much, Jessica, but I think it's just something that all of us who do love the sport and find things to love about it, it's something that we have to reckon with and look at and not try to obscure. Like when these stories come out, we need to talk about them and we need to think about, you know, what our role is in making it seem like this is like a a side thing or this is a thing that maybe, you know, we shouldn't let it get in the way of our enjoyment of the game. It's all wrapped up together and you can't extract the horrible parts from the things that we love. I think that's true so much around, there's plenty of things that that's true around in our culture, but gendered violence just in general, a lot of the time, a lot of the stuff feels very gray and we want it to be black and white. And one of the things that I've had to learn as someone who works on this all the time now is just sitting in the gray and just being okay being there. And it just often feels bad. Um, I will tell a quick Joel Anderson story since I'm here. Hmm. So I went to Florida State, and that's how I started writing on this topic, right? And so I went through my own battle with my fandom and eventually gave up watching college football. But what I remember really well is it was like the fall of 2015, August 2015 is when Dan Solomon and I reported Baylor and broke that story. And I remember texting with you, Joel, and I was like, I I can't watch college football anymore. Like, I think I'm just, I think I'm just done now. And you were like, don't let them win. Don't let them win. And I was like, man, they've won. (laughs) Like, I can't do it anymore. I mean, Uh, we knew Bobby, we knew that Bobby Bowden was kind of a you know, but just know, imagine, right? like, looking back at it now, right? I mean, look at what I don't like to. Oh, yeah, that makes right. me, mm, you know yeah. this. That makes me so <laughs> cringy. It, it just to think yeah. about how much I loved him and uh, then him, but like, him you out know, there James, stumping. Jameis Winston is on the Saints now. I mean, it's just like, yeah. <laughs> follows you around everywhere as yeah. a fan. Yeah. Like, there's no escaping it. Darius Geis, of course, went into the NFL was released from the Washington football team and is facing criminal charges for assaulting a girlfriend. Drake Davis was uh, eventually kicked out of LSU. There's been a real backlash on campus, an outcry, including by students, faculty, the governor of Louisiana. Do you see this as any different than what's happened on other campuses? And where should this go? How should this be adjudicated now? Yeah, and I will just add that Drake Davis actually pleaded guilty. So his case, you know, he's been convicted. Yeah, it doesn't feel too different. It does feel like a steam valve going, like the steam being released from like a pressure cooker or something. The response has been incredible, honestly, from professors and the student body in particular. People seem very upset. One of the things that happened was this week, um, STAR, which is the Sexual Assault Crisis Center in Baton Rouge, released a letter they actually sent to LSU Athletics in 2017. I don't think we knew that before, telling them that their Title IX policies, their responses to this stuff were not adequate because STAR gets a lot of the you know they they get a lot of the victims from LSU so they hear all kinds of things so we learned that women who weren't named in your story decided to come out and go public after the story came out yes and we had one of those women told us that the response was so much more positive 
right? She had a right to fear that it would be negative for all the reasons you were talking about before, Josh, uh, and that, in fact, it was actually much more positive, much more worried about the survivors and the victims. So, I mean, one of the struggles here that we talked about before is that the policies are already there. So it's like, what does LSU do to get everyone on board so that people understand the policy and then follow them? And it's going to be bigger than that. It's going to be a, some kind of cultural shift has to happen at LSU. I think the students were the ones who told us, like, it's a rape culture on campus. Yeah, there was a student reporter. I think that was the sentence that she gave us, right? That the culture on LSU's campus is a rape culture. So they're going to have to do that kind of work too. But I just want to reiterate, like the policies are there. So it's people just doing the jobs they've already laid out for them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing that concerns me, this like kind of default from the institution of we're going to examine our procedures and we're going to have some outside firm come in. And the thing that comes to mind there, Jessica, is like one of the more shocking things to come out of the fallout of the Baylor situation so that they bring in this outside firm and they report their findings like orally. And we never even heard what the findings were. That was just shocking. Like being cynical about all of this stuff. If you had told me like when all of the Baylor stuff came out that you reported that the upshot would be an outside firm reporting a thing that there's no, no record of the report and nobody got to hear it, I would have thought that's not possible. Yeah. And I'll just say on that front, there are a bunch of victims suing right now and they are winning in court. And we might actually get a lot more of that information from that report, Pepper Hamilton report about Baylor, hopefully sometime soon. But yeah, it's what year is it? It's 2020. And we first reported in 2015 in that report. The oral report was made in the spring of 2016. And I do think it's interesting. Art Bryles continues to be up like people are. Is Orgeron going to get fired the way that Art Bryles is? And I'll just say like he sort of is it. We don't, I mean, we had Paterno at PSU, but that was a little bit different as far as the players involved. I mean, Bryles sort of stands alone on this, right? Because even the Minnesota, I had a whole list once that I made of showing that it's they're always fired for bad football after whatever the sexual assault scandal. Because even it was the, was it Minnesota that boycotted, tried yeah, to boycott? That's right. That's right. The players tried to boycott the bowl game. And, and the coach back. was all about it. And then I think he was eventually just fired because they were bad. Right. So Bryles still stands alone. He acts as this like a rhetorical device, but there isn't actually any action to show that anyone else is going to face the same kind of scrutiny that he did or consequences, really. Jessica Luther reported the story for USA Today, along with Kenny Jacoby and Nancy Armour. Um, we'll link to it on our show page. Also a co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast and the co-author of Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. Thank you for your work, Jessica, and thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the man that Joel insists on calling Taysom Tebow, but who I respect enough to call by his correct name, Taysom Hill, the new Saints starting quarterback, who is a divisive figure, despite being, in my unbiased opinion, pretty awesome. To hear us talk about Mr. Hill, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus.
Freddie Adu was discovered playing soccer on a Maryland playground at the age of eight. By 14, he was starring for the U.S. at the Under-17 World Championship. Nike signed him to a million-dollar contract. D.C. United of Major League Soccer gave him a four-year, two-million-dollar deal. There was a Sierra Mist ad with Pele and a 60 Minutes profile by Leslie Stahl. Freddie Adu can do just about anything he wants with a soccer ball, including fake much older players right out of their cleats. People who know say that he could develop into the best player, not just in America, but in the entire soccer-mad world. I just love it so much, you know. When I'm out there in the field, I'm in a whole different world, you know. It's like, I'm just having so much fun. So you get paid all that money to have fun. To have fun, yeah. Wow. I mean, couldn't have asked for a better life, man. The week before that aired, I went to D.C. United's training camp and filed a column for the Wall Street Journal. I wrote wrongly in retrospect that it made sense for Adu to stay in America and cash in on his potential. But I also pumped the brakes. If Mr. Adu turns out to be only very good and not legendary, I wrote, will he burn out by 24 after a decade-long career? Will he be considered a failure? The answer we know now is a resounding yes. Adu is 31 and has played for 15 different pro teams in D.C., Portugal, Monaco, Greece, Turkey, Philadelphia, Brazil, Serbia, Finland, Tampa, Las Vegas, and, after signing a contract last month with a third division club, Sweden. He didn't become the best player in America, never seriously contended to make a World Cup roster, let alone the planet. Adu is now both a cautionary tale and a punchline. The question of what happened and why is the subject of a new podcast series called American Prodigy. It's hosted by our friend Grant Wall, who joins us now. Hey, Grant. Hey, how are you? Good. Congrats on the podcast. You profiled Adu for Sports Illustrated a year before he became world famous in 2003. You went to the U-17 Worlds in Finland on your own dime because you wanted to write a book about him. Why were we all so seduced by the prospect of a global American soccer star? Well, I think we've always wanted one in the United States, people who follow soccer, at least on the men's side, there's still, you could argue, has never been a true global superstar on the men's side from the United States. And Freddie, we thought, had the possibility of becoming one. And a lot of smart people who have been in the sport or respected said Freddie at the time had the chance to be that. And when he went to that under-17 world championship in 2003, he was the youngest player in the tournament at 14, had a hat trick in his first game and this crazy 50-yard run for a goal against South Korea. And that was right before MLS signed him and made him almost the highest paid player in the league. So you talk about in the podcast being next to a Premier League scout at the U-17 championships who says that Adu could be the best player in the world. Or maybe he said he was going to be the best player in the world. One of those. So it wasn't just like ignorant, kind of dreamy Americans who were saying, this guy has a chance to be great. There were um, scouts from European clubs who wanted him on their teams. Like this was real. And can you just sort of describe what it was that people saw in him? And like, what are some of the examples of the exuberance not from Americans about Freddie Adu? Well, one example was that Premier League scout who was 
a guy who had a fair amount of experience. I, I had sat next to him at that game in Finland. And, you know, a year before I had written this Freddie Adu story for Sports Illustrated, I had written a cover story on LeBron James as a 17-year-old in Akron, Ohio, that that story sort of made Americans more aware of, of who LeBron James even was. And I sort of used the same approach to reporting those stories for LeBron and for Freddie, which was to find respected people in the sport who had seen him play and would actually go on the record and say, he's this good. And having been able to do that also added the caveats about, you know, as with when Stefan was writing about Freddie for the Wall Street Journal, you know, you want to be responsible. And the fact of the matter is phenoms don't always make it. We know that. And here are the potential pitfalls for this particular player. So I did the same thing with LeBron. I did the same thing with Freddie, but there were real people who were saying that he could become this. I remember uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, the famous Manchester United manager I interviewed in 2003, and he asked for Freddie's number. Like he wanted to recruit Freddie Adu for Manchester United. Freddie eventually, a couple of years later, did get a trial with Man United that didn't go particularly well. And so there was this interest from very real people in the soccer world. I kind of hate to skip ahead here, but one of the things that occurred to me as a person who's not necessarily a soccer fan, I follow international soccer, but not soccer like obviously you guys do, but the fact that it just didn't seem that there was any particular plan to develop him as a player, that it seemed like they had a fully formed plan, a media plan, and a plan you know, for endorsements, but nothing about development. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I just was like, how can American soccer just totally waste somebody this talented? I mean, MLS in 2004, Freddie's first season, had only 10 teams. They'd actually cut two teams the year before or two years before. And so MLS, you could say, was kind of desperate in those days to capture the public's attention with anything. And Freddie Adu was one person who fit that. And so the league had never really seen anything like Freddie before in terms of a 14-year-old. He was the youngest pro team sport athlete in the United States in over a century. So it was an extreme situation the league was able to sign Freddie. He was able to play for DC United and did this ad campaign nationally with Pele, greatest player of all time. And so instantly you're telling the public to make this association between this 14-year-old who's never played a pro game and the greatest player of all time. And that, in retrospect, seems pretty irresponsible. And, and so you're kind of like, well, what were you guys thinking. Now, I spoke to Ernie Stewart, who was a teammate of Freddie's at DC United, played in three World Cups for the US. He's now uh, has a position running the men's side on US soccer. And he felt like Freddie Adu didn't get the opportunity in that first year to be a soccer player, that he was being asked to do so many promotional things that they didn't remember the soccer side. And Ernie Stewart remembers a game out in Colorado where they played the game in the evening and they had Freddie Adu signing autographs into the night after the game. And he said, I just felt sorry for him and what he was being put through as a 14-year-old because every last little bit was being squeezed out of the stone and it wasn't on the soccer side. 
Yeah, there was a story that uh, Steve Goff of the Washington Post did at the time that I dug out. And there's just this one sentence puts it into context. Through the end of June of 2004, Adu had done hundreds of interviews, chatted up Shaquille O'Neal, dined with Daniel Snyder, taken a cell phone call from Sean P. Diddy Combs, <laughs> greeted John Ashcroft, mingled with Will Ferrell and Robert Duvall, charmed David Letterman, flirted with Fox starlet Misha Barton and the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, and rocked with David Bowie. A dude didn't know who David Bowie was, and Don Garber, the MLS commissioner, told him, you might not appreciate this now, Freddie, but one day you'll be able to say you saw David Bowie in concert. You get the sense that this was completely out of control and driven by Major League Soccer's desire, understandably, to be relevant. Correct. And, you know, in... For Freddie's development, would it have been better if he'd signed with a European team and been in their development system and out of the media spotlight like Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna would be many years later? Yes. At the time, there was some uncertainty about FIFA rules preventing the transfer of players under the age of 18 to foreign countries, but I think they could have found a way to make it work. And I think... If you had been in like the Ajax system in the Netherlands, they've had players for a long time his age in their system and know how to how to do that. MLS in 2004 wasn't really set up to deal with that, even in the way MLS in 2020 would be. But you and Stefan, who were both watching this and writing about it at the time, weren't making that argument back then, right? Um, because there was the thinking that this was a kid. He was able to stay close to home. He was, you know, living in, in Maryland with his mom and brother. They had come over from Ghana, won the green card lottery just a few years earlier. And so, you know, back at, at the time, there was some logic to the fact that we don't want to send this kid away to Europe. And kids get, you know, chewed up and spat out by the club system and European soccer every day. So it wasn't like an obvious call at the time. And, you know, one thing that I wonder about is, was his failure, if we're going to put like a kind of nasty word to it, inevitable in that he was just really talented at a young age and wasn't going to develop, but he just would have been, he would have had a better opportunity or would have been treated better along the way, even if he wasn't as good or as talented as we thought he was at the age of 13. I mean, Freddie told me that the attention and the expectations did get to him and it impacted his play. And he, I wanted to see how self-introspective he would be about things that he himself could have done better over the years. And he admitted that he could have worked harder. He admitted that he thinks his biggest mistake he gets to Benfica in Portugal, which is this launch pad for European soccer careers and stardom, and ends up going out on loan for several years there instead of staying at Benfica and fighting for playing time. And he says, I wish I'd stayed at Benfica. That was the biggest mistake of my career. But he was like, his teammates thought he didn't work hard. He wasn't like in good shape, like as a 16-year-old, which isn't going to make a good impression. Yeah, that seemed really unfair to me. I don't know if, if you thought that, Grant, or the rest, but the criticism of his work ethic as a teenager just seems sort of beyond the pale because what the hell does a 16-year-old know about working hard as a professional, right? I, 
I think that's a fair point, you know, like in terms of, of Freddie and, and his performance, what was interesting over the years was he had these great moments with the U.S. national team program, whether it was Youth World Cups mm -hmm. or even the 2011 Gold Cup with the senior team where he started the final, was probably the U.S.'s best player in this classic game against Mexico that Mexico ended up winning 4-2. So there were moments, like the 2007 Under-20 World Cup, Freddie Adu had a hat trick. The U.S. team beat Brazil. And this was a U.S. team that went pretty deep into that tournament. And that's what got him signed for $2 million by Benfica right after that. So he had these moments with the national team in these summer tournaments, but then he couldn't find consistency at the club level. And that was confounding. And so I asked people about that and they felt like Freddie would really buckle down in these you know, short-term summer tournaments in a way that he didn't have that as much discipline at the club level to make himself be someone that the coach had to put on the field every week. You know, and this is the conundrum that I imagine you're going to explore in later episodes of the podcast. But to me, this has always been the mystery with Adu. He was on the one hand, super charismatic beyond his years in terms of handling the media and the pressure and also handling always playing against players that were much older than he from, from the very beginning, from when like some kids saw him playing at age eight on the playground and he ends up on a travel team within weeks. And he's, you know, very quickly playing against kids that are three and four and five years older than he is. But the thing that has always mystified me is that he looks so composed, but you could always see the insecurity there. You could always see something in his personality that wasn't quite clicking. And it always, it always felt to me like that had to do with getting as much exposure as he did, getting all the attention that he did, being treated differently. You know, DC United in that very first season when he was 14, Peter Novak, who you, you're the coach whom you, you interview and is in the podcast, talks about the pressure that he felt to play him. Who is it? Kevin Payne, the CEO of, the, of DC United, recounts in the second episode, I think, how he got a call from Major League Soccer's top executives the night before the opener that was going to be on ABC, pressuring Novak to start a do. So, I think you can't discount the emotional pressure that Freddie felt before he was mature enough to handle even a tenth of it. And the promotion changed Freddie's expectations of himself. So if you're in an ad with Pele the entire season long, then Freddie looked at that first season where he had five goals as a 14-year-old. He converts a penalty to send DC United to the MLS final, which they win. But he wasn't starting every game. He was coming on as a sub a lot of the time. And so Freddie looked at that first season, that title-winning season, as a failure. And was disappointed by it when actually no player that age had ever done anything like that in MLS. No teenager had. And so it sort of warped Freddie's own expectations for himself, I think. One of the recurring storylines in the first couple of episodes is your ambivalence about covering the teenage athletic phenom, right? You know, you, wrote, you talk about writing about LeBron when he was a junior in high school. 
And I'm just even thinking about your former colleague, George Dorman, writing about Demetrius Walker, who was the main character in the book, Play Their Hearts Out. So I'm just kind of wondering, like, so when you're at Sports Illustrated or whatever, and you're pitching a story, was there some sort of incentive to write about these guys? Did those stories do particularly well? Was there like, you know, a call for them because they knew that people fed off of that sort of story? I mean, I think there's a long tradition over the decades in the magazine business to put a young phenom you've never heard of on the cover, whether it's Sports Illustrated and like putting Rick Mount on the cover as a high school basketball player from Indiana or Vanity Fair, putting some actor or actress you've never heard of on the cover to try and make them a star or Rolling Stone, you know, like it's just something that magazines have always done. And, you know, I had this situation with LeBron where when we put him on the cover as a 17 year old in 2002, Part of me was totally fist pumping because you get excited as a writer for a cover story. And then part of me was like, I hope we're not ruining this kid LeBron James's life by putting him on the cover because this is going to change how people perceive him. And we have a role, in, like, we have an impact on that. Now, that said, any superstar in sports is going to have to deal with a ton of media attention at some point and, and deal with it. And not let him get sidetracked. I also knew that LeBron had a positive out of that magazine cover and the attention he got because he ended up getting an $87 million shoe contract with Nike before he'd played in the NBA. So there's a positive as well. But as I got older, because when I was doing these stories on LeBron and Freddie, it was 2002, 2003. So I was in my 20s. As I got older myself, I started to be more circumspect about stories I pitched about phenoms. And so when Christian Pulisic starts emerging as a 16-year-old soccer player in, in 2016, I think, I was more circumspect about it. And we didn't put him on the cover of the magazine. And so I think how I covered LeBron and the response it got impacted how I covered Freddie. And I certainly have been ambivalent about, about it over the years to the point where I asked Freddie in this series, do I owe you an apology? I sort of feel like the fact that soccer was less developed and less popular in America back then contributed to the fact that Freddie got the amount of attention that he did. Less sophisticated fan base, corporate America looking for somebody who could potentially help them break into this huge international market. So wanting to elevate this guy uh, beyond even his like high billing that he was getting from respectable people. And so it just feels like a perfect combination of the wrong time and the wrong place to give him the wrong kind of attention, where if he came around now, I think it wouldn't just be you. I think it would be all of us who would treat him very differently, given the fact that soccer is more popular now. There are more young American players who've had success, and we know what that success looks like, and we know that there isn't going to be one guy who's going to make America into a, a soccer country, that it's going to be more of a, and has been more of a gradual process. I mean, Grant, you weren't even covering soccer full-time in 2003, 2004. You were covering college basketball, too. Well, you were closer to covering Freddie Adu full-time than you were to covering <laughs> soccer full-time. I mean, you wrote <laughs> so many stories about him. Yeah. And, and I think also, Grant, it feels to me like just the evolution of the 
development system with inside U.S. soccer would preclude Freddie Adu being treated the way he was treated in 2000, you know, one, two, three, four. You look at Christian Pulisic, he didn't play up against older players when he was so far superior to all of his age group talent. He also had parents who were soccer players in college and in the pros. So I think we've evolved as a soccer nation, sort of piggybacking off of what Josh said. It's also youth development has evolved and and we are more sensitive to nurturing players who might actually be national team players when they are 17 or 18 or 19, when they're 13 and 14 and 15, and not to push them beyond their abilities. You're totally right. And now we have American teenagers playing regularly in Champions League over in Europe, like Gio Reyna, Serginio Dest, uh, guys in their early 20s, Pulisic, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams. And a lot of those guys did come through the MLS development system or through US clubs. And we weren't putting them in positions to fail at age 14. And so I feel like we kind of did that with Freddie. You know, what's interesting to me is the the closest you know, example we've seen to Freddie in recent years has been on the women's side where this Olivia Moultrie player went pro at 13 last year and signed with Nike and has been with the Portland Thorns organization since then. And so that's the closest thing we've seen, but she hasn't broken through and it's not like the Portland Thorns are putting her in a professional game yet. Grant Wall is the writer, producer, et cetera, of the new podcast series, American Prodigy. It's on Blue Wire. You can download it wherever you download podcasts. Uh, It's terrific. Grant, congrats on the series, and thanks for coming on the show with us. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for After Balls, and we weren't able to get to everything we wanted to discuss about Freddie Adu. In particular, the fact that he dated JoJo, which, uh, Joel, you were not aware of. No. I was glad that I was able to bring this fact to light for you. Um, I was Because your world is now richer for knowing this. Yeah, they were the same size. Did you The photo you sent me, it was very... <laughs> I mean, if we had to kind of break down like high soccer... Uh, career didn't go according to plan. <laughs> that revelation sort of clued me in a little bit too, by the way. So JoJo was the youngest solo artist ever to top the chart, age 13, for really? the hit Leave, Get Out, which Joel and I have uh, differing opinions on, on whether it's a banger or not. Um, I say it's, you say it's a banger. I say it's, it's okay. It's a banger is strong. 
but okay. Right. Well, I, I respect that you reserve that that term for uh, for the true bangers. You don't mm-hmm. want to dilute it. JoJo and Freddie Adu, according to Wikipedia, dated in 2005 and 2006. I also respect the fact that the Wikipedia page notes, JoJo made an appearance in the commentary box at a New England Revolution home game when they were playing DC United. That's just a, rand- a, a really? random fact that I'm also happy to know. JoJo, still out there, re-recorded her uh, vocals to get out from, from under a bad record deal. And we always like it when the artists are able to reclaim their catalog like that. Mm -hmm. So good for you, Jojo. Congratulations to Joel for now knowing about this relationship. And Joel, what is your Jojo? So my Jojo is Utah. And hopefully that'll make sense um, by the time I get to the end of this thing. Or maybe it won't. We'll see. So many awful things are happening simultaneously that it's understandable if you overlook the unfolding disaster in Utah. Over the weekend, the state set another record for hospitalizations related to the coronavirus. The Utah Department of Health also reported a seven-day average of 3,229 new positive test results per day. Utah now ranks ninth in the country in cases per 100,000 residents, which means it might soon climb into the top 10 in death rate. A columnist at the Salt Lake City Tribune called it the cliff we will be plummeting over in slow motion for the next several weeks. But despite it all, Utah never gave up on high school football. On Friday, Corner Canyon High School of Draper, Utah, won its third straight Class 6A championship and 40th consecutive game overall. The Chargers beat Lone Peak High School 45-7 in the title game. And it was pretty much over from the start. And the star was Corner Canyon's Jackson, and that's Jackson with an X, Dart. And that's, that's just a great name for a high school quarterback, by the way, Jackson Dart. But Dart piled up 446 yards and five touchdowns, setting the state record for touchdown passes in a single season. He's considered one of the nation's top recruits and has college offers from schools like Arizona State, BYU, UCLA, and USC. After the game, Dart told reporters, my focus this whole year was just to win a state championship, just win games. And Corner Canyon won a lot, finishing 14-0. That's more wins than any other football team, pro college or high school, in the country this year. In any other year, that would be a point of pride. But this year, in a country in a grip of the pandemic, it's unconscionable. Let's rewind a bit. So back in August, as 16 state high school sports associations moved high school football from the fall to next year, Utah became the first in the country to begin playing. The first high school game in the U.S. was reportedly played at Harriman High School, about 25 miles outside of Salt Lake City. The stands were filled at 25% capacity, and both schools brought their cheerleaders. That first weekend, only one game across the state was canceled because of the virus. The LA Times called it a brief time of normalcy for players and parents amid an uncertain time nationwide. A spokesperson for the Utah High School Activities Association declared it a positive start. But by October, at least four teams had stopped playing because of outbreaks. West Orem High School, the defending 5A state champion, missed almost a month and finished the season having played only nine times, which, to be honest, still seems like too many. In one of the schools hardest hit by outbreaks, Corner Canyon High School. Things were so bad there that the New York Times profiled the school in October. Corner Canyon eventually closed for three weeks, doing so only after 77 students and staff members tested positive, including a teacher who was hospitalized and placed on a ventilator. That teacher later recovered and returned home. The Times called it an object lesson in what can happen when schools reopen in communities that are failing to contain the virus. Corner Canyon didn't even abide by the state health department standards that it agreed to over the summer. 
Instead of going fully remote, it went to a hybrid schedule. When the school did do the right thing by canceling most homecoming events, parents organized their own homecoming party. The mayor of Draper, Utah, where Corner Canyon is located, told the Times he'd heard of an agreement between the mothers at the school not to get their children tested for the virus, even if they became ill. The idea was to keep the number of positive tests artificially low so the school wouldn't have to close. Just some really shameful shit. And you know what? Corner Canyon never stopped playing football. They played and won all three games scheduled during that three-week break in classes. Nothing got in the way of the Corner Canyon Chargers. Not their opponents, not a deadly virus, not their sense of obligation to the community. And it's hard to blame them as the governor of Utah, Gary Herbert, set the tone of recklessness for the state. Two weeks ago, Herbert declared a state of emergency in Utah. He also declared that football would be an exception to that emergency. There's only about 12 games left to go, and we want that to be concluded, he said. And he said that, even as an epidemiology supervisor with the Salt Lake County Health Department, pointed out that high school-age students continued to drive the spread of the virus. And that's how Corner Canyon High School finished as a 6A champion of Utah high school football, ranking as high as number eight in the nation. The write-up of the game by Max Preps called Corner Canyon season a victory of sorts for the state of Utah. So congrats, Corner Canyon in Utah. Do you feel like celebrating now? Tell him. Yeah. The Chargers, man. Get them, JoJo. <laughs> it, all, it all tied together. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're basically telling them, leave, parentheses, get out. That's Oh, yeah. I mean, now see, that is a banger right there, which you just did. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. <laughs>